Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and uh, let me encourage you to pray for me as well. Uh, it's come off a cough and cold this week, and so let's hope that doesn't fall. Maybe I'll just pass it to me. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we uh, do thank you <clears throat> that you reveal yourself in and through your word. And we do pray and ask we op- as we open up uh, the Bible this Lord's Day that you might engage our minds and our hearts so that we might come under the conviction of your spirit, uh, so that we might hear your word uh, as truly your word uh, spoken to us as a church community and to our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, there is an out- <coughs> outline in your order of services. You might want to pull that out. Uh, that might be actually helpful for you uh, as to follow along as we look at this portion of the Bible. Uh, I want to pick up where we left off uh, last week, where Paul gives thanks, uh, knowing that the church he writes to are loved and chosen by God. And so it's still part of Paul's thanksgiving uh, for the church, and he gives thanks really for three things. Uh, their welcome of the gospel into their lives, uh, their worship, They've turned from worshipping idols to serving and living now for the living and true God, and then they are now living their lives waiting for the return of Jesus. Uh, And so one of the things we're meant to see in verse 4 to verse 10 is uh, the marks of a people who are loved and chosen by God. There's welcome, there's worship, and there's waiting. Uh, But you notice that uh, one of the things we're meant to see is that they're a gospel-listening people. People who are now listening to the word. Uh, They are actually a God-loving people. uh, And they are a Jesus-waiting people. Now, we looked at welcome last week. This week, we just want to look at those other two things. uh, The worship aspect and the waiting aspect. And so, uh, have a look with me in your Bibles, verse 7 to verse 8. And there we read that the Thessalonian church was a church that really stood out. Okay, can you see that in verse 7 to verse 8? They were a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It says, verse 8, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Now, this is astounding because verse 7 is the only text in the New Testament where the whole congregation is actually viewed as a model for other churches. The only text. Uh, And again, the model is not their model of ministry, Uh, The model is not the breadth of ministries they offered. The model is the kind of people they were. See there? That's the model. You know, so often in church culture today, we look for models that we want to model off as a church. And we often look at ministry models. Uh, We often look at structures. We often look at the externals. But when the New Testament speaks of model churches, it speaks of the kinds of people present. Uh, And as you read verse 9, verse 10, there are two things that they model, two things about their faith in God that they model for the other churches, and it's there, verse 9, verse 10. Uh, Look with me at verse 9. Your faith in God has become known everywhere, therefore we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's the first one. And to wait for a son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us. From the coming wrath. So, in your outlines, here's the first one. A people who turn from idols to serve the living and true God. Okay? A people basically who change their object of worship in life from worshipping idols to now worshipping the living and true God. Okay, you see that in verse 9? In other words, 
<clears throat> there's a change in who or what they actually worshipped in life. Uh, they, they are now living for a different center in their life that they're building around, that they're building on. Um, in other words, the center of their lives change. That's one of the marks of someone who becomes a Christian. Uh, the center of their lives actually change. Effectively, they changed gods. Okay? Uh, Australian sociologist Hugh Mackay, uh, in his book, What Makes Us Tick, the 10 desires that drives us. This is what he writes. He writes, uh, he's a psychologist and a sociologist. He writes, all of us, Christian or non-Christian, believer or unbeliever, all of us are wired to believe in something by nature. And this is what he writes. Whether the desire is satisfied by conventional religious faith, that is belief in a God, or in other ways entirely, in fervent deification of science, someone who believes in science or almost or an almost mystical belief in the inherent integrity of the free market, that is, someone who believes in money, capitalism, or passionate atheism. So this is what he means. Everyone, Christian or not, <clears throat> religious or secular, we either make belief in God the center of our lives, or we make belief in science, or belief in money, or even disbelief in God the center of our lives. Okay? Could, many, could be many other things. Uh, English, English literary critic uh, James Wood in The New Yorker writes that even people who don't believe in God are religious because even their unbelief is a religious belief. He writes, atheism is structurally related to the belief it negates and is necessarily a kind of rival belief. So everyone believes in something that's an ultimate thing at the center of their lives. Uh, in your outlines, one of the questions in Martin Luther's larger catechism, we don't use Luther's larger catechism here, but in his larger catechism, one of the questions he asks is this question, what does it mean to have a God? What does it mean to have a God? What is God? And then he writes, my answer is, a God is whatever a person looks to for all good things and runs to for help in trouble. As I've often said, it's only the trust and faith in your heart which makes them both what they are, God and idol. See there? Something you run to for good things and something you run to when you find yourself in trouble. <clears throat> now, just think with me for a moment at what Luther says. That means for everyone, religious or secular, everyone serves a God in life. Something that they look to for all good things, uh, something that they run to, believing it can save them from life's troubles, that they believe will give them the good they desire for love, maybe for meaning, for significance, for security, for wealth. Um, and so you've got the God of power, perhaps, the God of beauty, the God of influence, the God of community, the God of love, the God of sex, the God of education, maybe, the God of community, the God of study, the God of family. Now, Here's something you might never have realized. Um, the ancient world actually recognized this as well. Because the ancient world had different gods for every area of life. Uh, so <clears throat> if you wanted success in your business, you went to Mercury, the god of merchants. Daskalos, the god of education. Eros, the god of beauty and love and youth. Eletheia, the goddess of childbirth, if you wanted children. Ares, the god of war. Hesphestius, the god of creativity. Kratos, the god of strength and power, and on and on it went. They, they basically had a god for every sphere of life. 
And an idol, an idol is nothing more than something or some place you look to because you believe it can give you the good you desire. Some place or something you believe can deliver you from some trouble or some unhappiness in life. Something or some place you serve in life because you believe functionally it can save you. And so idol worship is not confined to the ignorant or religious or even the uneducated. Idol worship is just as alive and well in our secular culture because everyone worships something or someone, uh, an object or possession, a people, a person, a place, a pursuit, an altar that they look to to find the good life, to find love, to find purpose, to find meaning, to find security, to find significance, where you look basically to find your salvation in life. And so modern secular people who think that only the uneducated worship idols are actually fooling themselves because they too have things and places they look to and serve that are actually ultimate things in their life that they're building on. Uh, Which is why you don't have to be a Christian to be a worshiper of some God in life. Uh, Because functionally, everyone has a God, an idol that they build their lives around. Uh, Modern people are actually not too different from people in the ancient world. Uh, We'd like to think we are, but we're not. Uh, Sociologist Hugh Mackay, he goes on to write that whether it's a supernatural being, you call God with a capital G, uh, or the current focus of your life, think with me for a moment, the current focus of your life. What's the current focus of your life? Think of the focus of your life. Is it science? Is it money? Is it wisdom? Is it information? Is it some ritual? Is it power? Is it love? He writes, I quote, most of us assign the status of God to something in our lives, whether we give it that name or not. In that sense, they are no godless people. Okay? The question is, which God is worthy of being worshipped and served? And whether the God you worship is going to actually give you the good you desire, whether the God you worship is going to actually save you from the trouble you find yourself in. Now, I am very sympathetic. I'm very sympathetic because if we are honest, Christian people, or even if you're not, we are all looking for the good, for the good life, for love, for happiness, for success. We're all looking for significance, to know we're worth something. We're looking for security. The problems that we tend to look for it in idols, that's always the problem. We take the good things in our lives, our career and our work, our education, our wealth, our finances, our marriage, our family, even our children, and we make those things ultimate in our lives, don't we? What we tend to do is all these things in life, we ascribe to them godlike power. And we ascribe to them godlike power because we believe they can give us love, happiness, success, significance, security, and fulfillment if we attain them. You see that? That's why Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, uh, Romans 1, 21, 23, Paul actually says, at the heart of sin is idolatry. At the heart of sin is idolatry. And, and this is what we do, he says. We worship the creation rather than the creator. <clears throat> we worship the gifts rather than the giver of those gifts. 
we worship the finite as the ultimate source of the good rather than the infinite who is the ultimate source of the good. And so in Romans chapter 1, verse 21 to 23, Paul actually says, although they knew God, they neither gave thanks to Him, neither did they glorify Him as God. They did not worship Him. And it says, their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. Now, why did they become fools? Because they exchanged the glory of the immortal God, the living and true God, for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles and every other sphere of life. Now, here's the problem with idols, isn't it? Making created things ultimate in your life. This is the problem when you make created things ultimate in your life. They will eventually fail because they're not alive. Did you hear that? They will eventually fail because they're not alive. Created things don't know you personally. Created things in your life don't love you. Do you think your career loves you? Do you think your money cares about you? And you know what? They have no power to act for you. They're actually powerless. They're lifeless. They're dead. Uh, And that's the reason why when you look at verse 9, verse 10, that's the contrast. The idol versus the living and true God. What Paul is actually saying, the idol is false and it's dead. It cannot deliver. It cannot save. Now, why can't an idol save or deliver? If you really think about it, Idolatry is actually nothing more than self-worship. Because this is what happens in idolatry. You take something in your life, and it isn't alive, by the way, and then you are ascribing to it salvific power. You are actually giving it salvation-like power, God-like power in your life. Which is why it will eventually fail you, because it's actually not alive. It doesn't know you, it doesn't love you, it doesn't care for you. Uh, It hasn't got the power to give you lasting love and lasting security and lasting wealth uh, and lasting significance. Uh, Quite recently, I was reading a book uh, titled God, Freedom, and Human Dignity. Uh, And the author, Ron Highfield, uh, is professor of religion at uh, Pepperdine University. And let me read to you what he writes about this. He writes, In greed, we seek our ultimate good in wealth when our ultimate good can be found in God alone. Now he says, this principle can be applied across the board. We become idolaters whenever we treat a finite thing thing with ultimate significance. See that? Finite thing with ultimate significance. Implicitly in the conceptual structure of idolatry is a religion that treats the divine as a means to a worldly end. That's why people worship idols, right? The idols and the gods they represent are symbols of the finite goods human beings seek and the evils they fear. It is inconceivable that one would approach the storm god or the god of fertility for any other reason than that one wants abundant rain for the fields or prodigious reproduction for the flocks. The essence of the storm god is rain. And the essence of the fertility goddess is reproduction. And so it is for all gods. And then he says, the Bible criticizes idolatrous religion because it never rises to the level of true religion. That is, love and devotion to God as the sole source of good things and the only object worthy of worship. 
And so idolatry is a kind of religious worldliness that seeks by religious means a life of health and prosperity in this world. Idolatry does not challenge our innate self-centeredness. Rather, its main goal is to extend our control over our lives by a kind of religious management of the divine. In other words, this is what he means, it's not God we worship, it's stuff we ascribe God-like salvific power in our lives, and it will eventually fail us because it's nothing more than self-worship. <clears throat> it's really our attempt to be in control in life. If you can't make up your own God to save you, if you can't choose your own God to give you purpose, meaning, love, happiness, and security, then if you can do that, if you can choose your own God, then it's not God you worship, it's yourself. That's the problem with idolatry. Let me pause here for a moment, right? Everyone in this room is actually a worshiper. You are. We all have altars in our lives that we worship. Sometimes it's very apparent. People around you know what you worship in life. What's the object at the center of your life? But you know, more often than not, it's not obvious. And the reason why it's not obvious is because it's inside here, isn't it? It's in our hearts. What we have made ultimate in our lives, the things and places we believe will give us love and happiness and success and significance and security, the stuff we crave in life, it's in here. People actually can't see it. But you can tell, can't you? You can actually tell what you worship by what's consuming and controlling your life. Uh, where the affection of your heart is directed in life during the week. Where your longings are directed. Where your hopes in life are actually placed. Where your greatest security is found. Where your worth is placed. And ultimately what you are building around and building on in life. And so if you pause for a moment, you can actually tell, can't you? And I think if you are honest, and if I'm honest... I'd actually say that idolatry is a lot closer uh, than you and I would care to admit in our lives. Uh, and if as a follower of Jesus you think you're not prone to idolatry, I suspect you're fooling yourself. Which is why, you know, 1 John chapter 5, verse 21, right at the end of 1 John, uh, John's final words to the church, which is kind of weird because at the, the last, his last word to the church is, Dear children, keep yourselves from idolatry. Now, why does he say that? He says that because idolatry is much closer to our hearts than we realize. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, Reason for God, <clears throat> he actually points out the, the dangers of making your work, <coughs> your family, your ambitions, your possessions, or even relationships the center of your life, what you build on. This is what he writes. He says, if you build your life and identity on your spouse or partner, you will be emotionally dependent, jealous, and controlling. The other person's problems will be overwhelming to you. If you build your life and identity on your family and children, you will try to live your life through your children until they resent you or have no self of their own. At worst, you may abuse them when they displease you. If you build your life and identity on your work and career, you will be driven to workaholism. And you'll be a boring and shallow person. 
At worst, you'll lose your family and friends. And if your career goes well or poorly, he says, you will develop deep depression, especially when your career fails. And he says, if you build your life and identity and money and possessions, you'll be eaten up by worry or jealousy about money. You'll be willing to do unethical things to maintain your lifestyle, which will eventually blow up in your life. If you build your life and identity on relationships and approval, you will constantly overly be overly hurt by rejection and criticism, and thus always losing friends. You will fear confronting others and therefore be an unhelpful friend. This is Keller's point. Idols will always leave you crushed and idols will always disappoint you. Why? Because idols are incredibly demanding. Because you must work to attain some standard. You must perform to keep some expectation. You must work to be loved and accepted. You must be good enough to be successful. And so, in idolatry, the burden is always placed on you. Church, can I say the idols in your life are going to crush you and disappoint you because they are never conditional, they will always be demanding. Which is why Christianity came into the ancient world and it comes into our lives, to coin a phrase, as the destroyer of the gods. As the destroyer of the gods. There's a book that I saw this week, but I didn't want to buy it, it was too expensive. Uh, it was a book on uh, Christianity as the destroyer of the gods in the ancient world, ancient Greek world. But that's what happens. Christianity comes into our lives and our worlds, the destroyer of the gods. Because unlike the gods of the ancients, Christianity declared that God loves you unconditionally in the saving work of his son. And he ultimately gives you what you are looking for. Pause with me for a moment and think about the gospel. If you're looking for a love that won't crush you, an unfailing love that won't fail you, a trustworthy love, and ultimate love, well, God has demonstrated that for you at the cross where his son died for you. If you're looking for a security that won't fail you, an ultimate security, well, he's demonstrated that for you in Jesus. Jesus overcoming death forever. That means there's nothing that he is not powerfully in control over in your life or my life. If you're looking for significance and worth that won't change just because you're no longer attractive, and ultimate significance and worth, well, he secured that at the cross by laying down his life for you unconditionally. If you're looking for wealth that will never run out, and ultimate wealth, well, he's given that for you at the cross by giving you the greatest gift of his son's life for you. Surely he'll give you all things. Has it ever occurred to you that the good things we crave and desire for in life can only be found in the source, the creator, the one who made you and loved you, the living and true God. You see, the Thessalonians came to know this in the gospel, which is why you notice it says, verse 9, verse 10, they turned from idols to serving and living for the living and true God. Previously, I thought the deepest desires of my heart were found in idols, worshiping idols, but now I found the deepest desires of my heart in God, my creator, the one who has unconditionally loved me and made me his in the saving work of his son. One of the marks of Christian conversion is faith in the living and true God. 
is expressed in, in who's at the center and what you're building on in life. So let me ask you this morning, right? Really good question to ask. Has Jesus come into your life as the destroyer of the gods in your life? Good question to ask. Isn't it? Has Jesus come or has the gospel come to you as the destroyer of the gods in your life? It's a good question to ask. But that's the second thing. Have a look at verse 10 with me. Uh, and you find it there. Uh, it's in verse 10. There's now a change. Change in their perspective on life in the present because they're now living for a different future. Okay? Um, they have eternity on the horizon. You see there in verse 10. Now, everyone has hopes and dreams when it comes to the future. Uh, Christian or not, religious or secular, everyone has a vision of the good life. In other words, uh, if we had a we had breakout groups and we had discussion and I said to you, you know, uh, what's your ideal picture of the future? You'd probably have a vision of the future, an imagined future, a hoped-for future. And our vision of the future actually affects the present, how we live, how we make decisions. In fact, <clears throat> our vision of the future also affects how we deal with disappointments in life, how we deal with pain and suffering uh, and hardship. Let me give you an example. If I believe that in the future, the wrongs committed against me and the sufferings of others are going to be made right, it would give me peace and confidence in facing injustice, wouldn't it? But notice it does the second thing. It would also make me a person of justice. It would make me care about justice because I know there will be ultimate justice one day. Right? Or here's another one. If... I believe that in the future, my broken and sick body will be restored, and I'm going to get a body that will never fail, right? Uh, it would give me hope in my suffering, wouldn't it? But it would also make me a person who cares for the broken, who cares for the sick, who cares, basically, for the frail, because I know there will be a restoration one day. See, it does two things. Uh, if I believe that in the future I'll have riches far beyond uh, any material possession that this life can give me, notice, it would free me from being anxious. It would free me from being tied to my finances and material wealth, wouldn't it? But notice it will do a second thing. It would also make me a person who is generous with my finances and possessions because I know there's greater riches to come. Now, I want you to notice this, right? A vision of the future does two things. It gives you the ability to handle and deal with present disappointment and suffering. But it also directs your life. Because it tells you some things are more important. Some things are of more value. Some things become less important as you think of that future. Now, notice the better vision of the future that captured the Thessalonians. Look at verse 10 with me. It says, They didn't just turn from idols to serve the living and true God, but also to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So in other words, the, the Thessalonians envision a day when Jesus would return to rescue them from the coming wrath. Uh, what does that mean? Well, in the words of the Apostles' Creed, it's there in your bulletins today that we're going to affirm together. It's what Christians have affirmed for 2,000 years. 
we believe on the third day he rose again, he ascended into heaven, he's seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. That was the horizon they lived by, okay? The day of coming wrath in the Bible is the great judgment day. And it's the day God actually executes justice, a day of justice for the living and the dead. Romans 2.5 says, the day his righteous judgment is revealed. It's the day when he makes things right. That's the judgment day. The day God fixes what's broken in our lives and what's broken in our world, where he executes justice. Isn't that a good thing? I think it's a great thing. Now, you may not be a Christian, or maybe you've got friends who are not Christian who've never thought about anything beyond this life, let alone the judgment day. Most of us don't think about it. But let's just pause and take a step back and assume for a moment that there is such a thing as life beyond the present. Okay, let's assume there is life beyond the present. Let's assume for a moment that there is a judgment day where wrong is made right, where brokenness is fixed, where injustice is punished, where good is rewarded, where death is reversed, where sickness is healed, where the hurt you've experienced is removed. You can imagine that, can't you? You can. You can imagine a better future. Why is that? It's worth asking friends of yours who are not Christian to imagine a better future. They can. This is the reason why. It's because whether you're a Christian or not, it's actually the future everyone wants. It's the future we long for, and it's the future we wish for. That means if you're a secular person who doesn't believe in anything beyond this life, if there's nothing beyond this life, it means today the present is all you have. The present is what you're stuck with. Present injustice, present suffering, present loss. Good is never going to be ultimately rewarded. Fight injustice all you want, but there's no guarantee it'll prevail. In fact, why care for the weak and the vulnerable if at the end there is nothing? In fact, why bother doing anything good if there's nothing beyond? You can be hopeful things improve, but ultimately there is no hope because you cannot guarantee that things are going to get better. And even if you do for a while, it might improve, but why bother if there's nothing beyond? See, if there is nothing beyond, then everything you do is eventually forgotten. Your care for the poor, your giving to compassion, your fight for justice, your concern for the environment, nothing actually makes any difference. Even your best endeavors will come to nothing if at the end there is nothing beyond, unless there is a God and life beyond. Now, in our heart of hearts, we can imagine a better future, can't we? You can imagine a future where love triumphs over evil, where injustice is punished, where good is rewarded, where death is reversed, where sickness is healed. You can actually imagine a world as it should be, rather than the world we know today. You can, can't you? Well, Christian people have a perspective on life and a future that goes beyond this life because of Jesus. That's why verse 10 reads, and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
You know, before Columbus discovered the New World, the motto of the Spanish was Ne plus ultra. Nothing beyond. That's how the Spanish thought of the world. Nothing beyond. Because Columbus has basically, because uh, the New World was not discovered, they thought you'd fall off the edge of the world. But after Columbus discovered the New World, they changed the motto of the Spanish Empire to plus ultra. There's more beyond, right? For Christians, the belief that there is more beyond is grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. The ultimate sign that there is more beyond. Not just more beyond, but a better tomorrow. The future we actually want. The world as it should be. Because life loss can be returned to you. Love separated by death can be reversed. Wrongs will be made right. Brokenness healed forever. Injustice punished. Good rewarded. Love will finally triumph over evil. And if this is true, if this is true, it means this life, the present is worth living. Doing good is, has merit. Justice is worth fighting for. Caring for the weak has value. Making the world a kinder and more loving place is worth it. Suffering need not defeat you. Disappointment need not crush you. You can have confidence in adversity. You can even know peace when wrong. Why? Because look at verse 10. We wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Do you believe that? Do you actually believe that? I don't know whether you realize this. Your vision of the future actually empowers and shapes the way you will live today and also the way you'll respond to your disappointments in life. So it empowers a particular way of living, but it also enables a particular response to the disappointments you face in life. <coughs> your understanding of your destiny shapes your reality today. So let me ask you this question, church. Have you grasped your future? your destiny as God's chosen and loved people. Maybe if you did, you would be less anxious about your security in life. Maybe if you did, you would be less attached to your material possessions in life. Maybe if you did, you would be less bitter about the hurt and the injustice you've experienced. Maybe if you did, you would be more generous with your finances because you're, you would realize what you already have and what you no is coming. Maybe if you did, if you knew your destiny, you would actually care for the weak and the vulnerable because you know there will be a day of justice when the oppressor will be punished. Maybe if you did, you would speak up for the voiceless and the powerless, right? Because you know there will be a day when wrongs committed against them will be made right. Maybe if you did, you would work to make the world around you in your workplace a better place because ultimately that is what God is going to do one day. Have you grasped your future, your destiny? Is this your longing? A people who are waiting for Jesus from heaven, whom God raised from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. 
Some of you I know are reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity. I know Victor's got a personal book club going or in his community group with the men. But in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes, uh, a, you know, because you, you often hear people say this, right? Uh, there used to be a saying in Christian circles, and you hear it sometimes here too, don't be too heavenly minded. Because if you're too heavenly minded, you won't be of any earthly value, right? You hear that said? Well, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity writes, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not a form of escapism, is not a form of wishful thinking. But one of the things a Christian is meant to do, and then he says, it does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is. And then he says, if you read history, you'll find that Christians who did the most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next world. The apostles themselves who set, foot, set on foot the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. You see that? Your vision of the future empowers the way you live today. The things you will value today is determined by what God is going to do in the future. But it also gives you enduring comfort as you face disappointments in life. It gives you enduring comfort because it tells you what God will do to fix things. I was actually laughing on Thursday. I was a bit unwell last week. Min knows that. <clears throat> Had to sleep in on Wednesday. But then on Thursday, I was working the sermon. I was laughing because... I was reading what John Piper said about being too heavenly minded. Uh, and this is what John Piper said. He said, it is possible to be so heavenly minded that we are of no earthly use. So he said, it's possible. You can be so heavenly minded that you're not of any earthly use. And then he says, this is my problem. I've never, I've never met one of those people. And then he says, and I suspect if I met one, the problem would not be that his mind is full of the glories of heaven, but that his mind is empty and his mouth is just full of platitudes. And then he says, I suspect that for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of otherworldliness, there are a hundred who are useless because of this worldliness. Interesting, isn't it? He says, I suspect for every professing believer who is useless in this world because of being too heavenly minded, he says there's probably a hundred others who are useless because of their, of this worldliness, of present worldliness. And you know, if we're honest, it's true, isn't it? The danger is not that we're too heavenly minded. It's more than likely we're too present minded, which makes us ineffective when it comes to living the Christian life in faithfulness and witness. As a church, I want to say to you, know your future. It will shape your life today. It should. It should make you value the things that God values. And it also should give you comfort when you face your challenges and disappointments in life. A few things for us to reflect on and maybe respond uh, to as a church community as we come under the word today. The music team's going to come up as I lead us in a time of reflection and prayer. Uh, and as we do that, I want to pause and give us an opportunity to respond to what God might be saying to you and to me as we've heard his word 
this morning. So just bow with me as I commit our time uh, to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we just want to pray right now that you might bring under the spirit conviction of your word. We want to recognize that Sunday worship is not always an indicator we've turned from idols to worship you. Father, people around us can't see our hearts, but you know what's at the center. The things and places that we are looking to, building our lives around, guiding and shaping us, controlling us. Church, if that's you this Lord's Day, if you are in the grip of an idol, it will eat you alive if you don't turn from it. Maybe there's some of us here that have recognized there are idols we really need to deal with. Maybe this morning, Jesus comes to you as the destroyer of the gods in your life. Rejoice. Just let go of that idol and trust it to Him. Let Him take it and destroy it. And start taking hold of the living and true God. Let the Lord Jesus give you the ultimate love and wealth and significance and security that you're looking for. Father, we pray this morning that the Lord Jesus might come as the destroyer of the gods in our lives. Or maybe this morning the Spirit is challenging us to take our eyes off the present and to start anchoring in the future. Open our eyes to the great day where life lost is returned, where love separated by death is reversed, where wrong is made right, where brokenness is healed, where injustice is punished, where good is rewarded, where love will finally triumph over evil. Maybe the reason why our lives are so directionless is because we have no longing for the kingdom. The present overwhelms us, not the future. Maybe the reason why we're filled with despair in our circumstances is because the present informs our circumstances, not the future. And so this morning, maybe our prayer, your prayer, is that God might give you and I and us as a church a longing for the future He's promised, to long less for the present and to long for the future, waiting for the Lord Jesus, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Amen.